Norden of the Ontological Oxymorons. I'm your host, Joel Bouchard, a doctoral student in psychology, and with me today is Mr. Norman Gayford, a professor of English and philosophy. There are many themes that reoccur throughout our show, and one of, if not the biggest theme, is this. How do we know? And while this question opens up the door to many philosophical discussions regarding knowledge, epistemology, and ontology, today we're going to follow up on our discussion of verisimilitude by asking the question a different way. How do they know? <laughs> this simple word substitution suddenly makes the question one of credibility. Nice. <laughs> so, um, yeah, we, uh, you know, after verisimilitude last week, we got, you know, thinking, man, there's, there's more to say there. Um, and there's nothing wrong with doing a verisimilitude part two. Maybe we will in the future, depending on how long we go, <laughs> 10 years from now or something. <laughs> but um, so we started throwing around some synonyms. Well, what are some other things that are not synonyms, but um, related concepts? And um, the, the one that you, you came that you, oh, you, you tossed to me incredible and i liked yeah. credibility yeah yeah credibility. credibility so and at, at first blush um you know again me just um thinking about what credibility means to me i thought okay well this is um fairly straightforward as i started doing research i discovered <laughs> no this is not straightforward at all oh. <laughs> so i think it's going to be fascinating um but yeah. what what is the credibility well, let's, let's start with the, the etymology of the word. So, credere, um, to credibilis in Latin, and up through it, it it's essentially uh, anchors on the word belief or believe. And that's where we, the, uh, the obvious branches off to verisimilitude. But uh, really, you're considering objectivity and you're considering subjectivity and you're, and you're trying to um, figure out objectively or subjectively. And those two things are vastly different. We know we've talked about these things and we'll continue to. They, why is something potentially to be believed and, 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 when we talk about the history of this, we're going back to Aristotle again. We always go back to the three, the big three, right? Uh, because rhetoric at its best was supposed to be about uh, persuading, but persuading toward the truth, hmm. seeking the truth. But then we have this branch that also deals with this credibility of a kind uh, uh, called the sophists and I, and I know we've talked about yeah. the sophists so, sophistry is uh, engaging in trying to persuade somebody of anything you want to persuade them about whether or not it has any basis hmm. in truth so it's, it's, it's persuasion without moral or ethical uh, structure yeah yeah, so that was that was the really fascinating part doing the research was um that I think that when most people think of credibility they just think of the objective part like oh well for something to be credible it has to be right. Mm, no. no, it um you know that should be a part of determining credibility, but there is this whole other subjective part of credibility um that really influences whether somebody considers right. that source credible. Aristotle wanted to know what was persuasive in any 
particular situation? Where are the elements that could persuasion could be uh, brought in to push toward that better outcome in a sense? And that's why there were these, I call them the three musketeers of ethos. <laughs> there, there are three of them. Anyway, and, and, and um, ethos, logos, so, the pathos. So, the pathos, and the ethical, the logical, and the, the pathetic. Pathetic meaning relating to the emotions, mm. right? And so if you do, uh, if you aim for ethical persuasion and, pre- and present ethical things in a, you tell a story that's all emotional, and you have factuality built into it. Aristotle said, "You've you've got it made." Yeah. Well, no. <laughs> <laughs> Patently not, but <laughs> I guess it depends on what you mean by having it made. Um, <laughs> in terms of getting people to believe you're credible maybe and that's the interesting thing about credibility is that credibility um it's i think that in a lot of ways it's not about um objectively about the source of knowledge no. credibility is about the belief of the person receiving right. the knowledge. is this knowledge believable mm. that's that's what you know, so you can you can present an absolutely concrete fact if well there still are a few, right? But, but maybe it's wet concrete. But anyway, you 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 aren't necessarily just by presenting the fact you haven't established necessarily credibility with the person who's hearing it. Yeah. So that was the other thing doing the research for the show that that struck me. One, you know, was that there's a subjective component to credibility, and the other was that credibility doesn't. You know, it's not focused on the source of information. It's focused on the person receiving the information and how they considered the source credible. So it, it flips the script sort of from what at least I I don't know if there's others out there that think the same, but at least from what my view was going into it, um, it flips the script. Oh, the credibility is more about me um, receiving the information than it is about the person who's, who's giving it. Right. So... Was Aristotle the start of it? Is that where philosophers started being concerned with credibility? In a formal sense, yes. Because I, you know, I, I wouldn't say the philosophy was always concerned with credibility necessarily. Because there was a time, um, probably, and I think that probably where that would start would be with the birth of science. Right? There's probably a time before rigorous um, inquiry began where it was a lot of postulating right well that's that's what philosophy is philosophy right. is the, the cauldron for science so uh, but yes yes there's postulating yes and and not necessarily toward trying to persuade somebody something was more of oh here's how the universe works hmm. um i'll tell people about it but really isn't it interesting this is how the universe works and and but there comes a point at which you want or need people to get on board hmm. with the way the universe works right and so i mean we can just jump forward to the climate crisis and there are still people who do not find it no matter how many facts are presented no matter how many tales are told I don't acknowledge that it exists 
and more now seem to acknowledge that it exists, but it's just incredible that it could happen because there's nothing that we've done. Right. <laughs> right. And so, and, and you, and all of that. And so you, you just you think about scientists or with COVID or science, as science going into this battleground, essentially, <laughs> of saying, look, here's the data. This is what it tells us. And people say, no, that's not credible. Yeah. And again, this is, this is where credibility gets tricky, right? Because um, I'm, I'm trying to pick my words carefully here. Not science, but the scientific community isn't infallible because it's made up of people. people. And people have weaknesses. And sometimes the weaknesses are, um, you know, a cognitive bias or um, a way of observing things that, that blinds them to other facts. Um, and sometimes the weakness is um, a measure of greed or something, a, a personal gain in exchange for a certain service, right? Mm -hmm. So there's always going to be scientists, and I'll put that in, in quotes, that uh, say there is no global warming or there is no climate change. Mm -hmm. Whether they honestly believe that because they have a certain blindness or they're looking at data a certain way that doesn't jive with the mainstream community and the actual scientific method or whether they don't necessarily believe the science, but they're being offered something by an oil company or another sure. entity that, yeah. that is interested in continuing business as usual. And then you look at the big picture, though, and the big picture is almost 98% of scientists on the planet have said and continue to say, uh, yeah, this right. is happening, right? So, all right. so this is where credibility is interesting, right? Because you might it? only have that 2% that's yeah. doing the wrong thing, but since credibility is on the onus of the audience, mm -hmm. um, of the receivers of the information, um, it doesn't matter if it's only 2% of scientists saying it doesn't exist. There's a very good chance 50% of the population might take cherry pick what those two scientists are saying in order to support the their own worldview. Yep. And this is something we talked about um, with verisimilitude last week and how we come to know information, you know, and, and that it's important that we start with a process in order to come to a conclusion rather than starting with a conclusion and then finding evidence that supports that conclusion. And, yes. And I don't know if this is the moment. You can tell me what hold this thought until it is in, in what you have planned. But I, I think we need to talk all about the, what's the word I want? The, the trappings, the, the, the clothing of, in a metaphorical sense, how information is presented, but then underneath that, how people take the speaker doing the presentation. This is why this is so much about public speaking. Mm. Because we have uh, habituated, trained of across huge amounts of time, notions of what makes a speaker credible. Now, there are some pretty standard notions of public speaking, but those, those have run against, of course, cultural changes and what, what people are willing to hear because of the very presentation itself. So, as an example, if someone with hesitance begins to say something or they seem to have a scratchy throat or or their voice isn't deep and you know, 
women have dealt with this. All genders deal with the, the perceptions of other genders, but women have dealt with this, for example, when her voice is not low enough, therefore she doesn't have authority. And that kind of stuff gets thrown around all the time by men, mm. right? Because we, we are blindsided and trained to be so to only accept a certain timbre of voice as a creditable delivery of information. So, so anything from, from body language, kinesics, kinesthetics, anything with voice quality, which should not have anything to do with or doesn't the information itself, but which can render that information not credible because people don't want to think of because of the way it got said. Yeah, yeah, and they've they've sort of proved this out, showing that um, the set of qualities you're talking about are, are usually put under the umbrella term charisma, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, they found charisma and physical attractiveness will determine whether a speaker is considered credible, right? right. And Your that's perception pre- of the speaker. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's less, you know, it's less about what's being said to people could say the same thing, but if they're on vastly different ends of the spectrum in terms of their appearance and how they sound and how they present themselves, um, that's going to determine how the listener um, considers the information. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, you can see this happen all the time. Um, I personally am, am the type of person that I don't speak confidently because I'm really not, right? If somebody's talking to me about something, I'm going to really listen to what they have to say, and then I'm going to do some mental math here, right? And I'm going to going to try to integrate that information with what I already know before I come to an opinion and, and say something. And the thing that I say is probably going to be hesitant because I'm in the process of learning it, right? Those are things that are not valued by a credible source. You want somebody who instantaneously has the answer and, you know, is confident and, you know, makes decisive um statements and stuff but is that Which really is quite probably why we are in the position we are in today right. I <laughs> because i i argue that that confidence uh, the kind of confidence is what's important they it's not the from the hip look at me i'm i'm able to command anything look how many characters we've we've invented <laughs> put on the screen or anywhere else that's that's like this. But who are the more interesting characters? The ones who run against a wall and realize that they were wrong and that they're wrong again and they better readjust. And and yet Captain America is just confident as can possibly be, right? Except when he's not. Hmm. Except when there when there's a debate going on about big ideas. I'm staying in pop culture for a second just because I think it's easy to transfer it out to everything else. I think the confidence in 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 knowing that the world is complicated and the comp- and thus the confidence in saying this requires thoughts a thought and so i am able to confidently say to you that i can be unsure about something and i might even change my mind about it but it still needs to be discussed is a world ahead of the confidence that says i have all the answers only i can solve the problem right now yeah it's dangerous um, has the concept of credibility evolved or does it remain the same over time? Do you it, think? It, it has evolved to some extent 
I think uh, evolve is good because evolve is a good choice of word because evolve evolution as we know is blind or mostly so. And so things have evolved because again of the of the clash, the essential clash of of ethical rhetoric and persuasion with with sophistry. And I and I don't think for me, even though there would be people much more educated than I, with with well earned degrees, just would say, oh no no, that rightfully that there are all kinds of nuances that have taken place of technological nuances hmm. and and those are pretty big deal i think the I, but i think the evolution is in the, the filters we use to present but but ultimately i think that either you are making the attempt at persuasion and believability because of the integrity of the data and the import of the moment that is carrying you toward talking about this, or you're somebody who says, "Yeah, I can sell that. Give me that. I don't have to care anything about it, but I can I can use my face and sell it." All the the logical fallacies that were developed over time or recognized over time, those haven't changed. Hmm. So, yeah, I think that um, you know, in doing the reading, they were you know, there's this sort of. Uh, Things changed with the internet, essentially, right? Yeah. Um, up yeah. until that point, you know, a lot of the communication you had was, in some fashion, um, seeing these people. But I think that a lot of those things still transfer in technology. Um, if you have a web page, right, you can say whatever kind of nonsense you want on the web page. But if the web page is attractive, right? If the web page states things confidently <laughs> it's it sort of transfers it's not anthropomorphic but those qualities that you respect in a speaker right the attractiveness and the charisma and these things that that give somebody credibility yeah. you can transfer those online and to a polished format and establish credibility that way whereas you know i can say something that's true right but if I have a lime green background with red 8-bit letters on the website, people are going to be like, what sort of weird conspiracy theory right. is this? Right. And that's and that's ex exactly that. That's why I, I said the filters through which it goes. I mean, yeah, we know now. We know the peril that misuse of, of social media can, can create. Um, and, the, and the bullying everywhere from the kids who shouldn't be subjected to this but are the new new horrors of of levels of bullying because of the the tools and how they're used but but also there is a, a i think it's probably as old as humanity but i think it's much more easily exacerbated now because of the technology that you 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 wander to the people that you're going to say what you want them to say Mm. There is there. There are all kinds of things that make it much easier to not hear any other thought but the one you just want in the echo chamber. Yeah, because of the search engine, right? If in, and this is why you know a college campus is is sort of a magical place, or at least it was. It's been a while since I've been on, on a, a real campus, but um, you know because you walk in and there's all of these people from all different walks of life. And, you know, even in the case of, you know, community college, all different 
um, age ranges and things. Yeah. And, um, you know, and everybody's being exposed to new ideas. And then a lot of those people are talking about those ideas with each other. And going in, you don't know what all of these other people believe. So you're either going to hear what they believe and then you're going to offer a counter or you're going to state what you believe and then you're going to be you're going to come up with other people who have different ideas on the internet. You can search for something and the way that you search for something is going to give you different results, right? If depending on if you type in climate change hoax or, uh, you, you know, or global warming data or whatever it is, you're going to get a wildly different field, um, of, of results. And they're going to, be tailored to what you're looking for, which, you know, is that's probably the purpose of a search engine, right? Here we are. We're in an ethical conundrum with our technology mm-hmm. that that is sort of flies under the radar, right? But it's it's a big it's a, it's a big and important part of the credibility discussion. Yeah, because before that, you could go to the, let's say the, the the way that I went to college with without those those tools. And again, I'm, I hasten to say this is not nostalgia saying, oh, everything was better back in the old days. It was not. Um, it was onerous research was in, in the sense that you'd have indexes by month uh, or sometimes by quarter of all the articles that have been published in a particular field and the index was guided toward that field. And you'd look up the articles that, that were published and you would uh, choose what you wanted to read. But you'd have to look at the title of the article, and even then, it's a scholarly material. You might not be able to suss it out, and you can look at an abstract sometimes. Sometimes you just go for it and, and, and go read it. It doesn't say, uh, here's the index of articles that agree with X. or right. No, you had to figure that out. Mm-hmm. And I think that was that's still very important for critical thinking, to read things you don't necessarily want to read in order to figure out where the where the field lies and where the credibility problems that you will face in trying to enter into the conversation hmm. lie it's, it's a, now it's a strategy right what, what are people seeming to uh, gravitate toward and if you're going to talk about that thing you you need to know what they're gravitating toward so you can then find ethical ways of saying, yeah, but here's the data. Right. So does the concept of credibility change depending on the context, do you think? Or are we always looking for the same thing across different contexts? No, I, I, I think it changes with the context. If you're, if you're talking about, for instance, and, maybe, and you correct me if you're not, if you're talking about, about sociological things, if you're talking about religious circumstance or 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 a daily news circumstance or a family medicine circumstance i think the the context of credibility changes i th- i think that people are there are different veils that come down and different acceptances depending on those circumstances but even even in the medical circumstance uh, you you know that there are people who um, accept the, the medical person that they found to work with. Uh, but there may be people who are working with doctors, there are, who have second languages, third languages, fourth languages, and English is not the first, who thus sound different 
than the local folk. And therefore, and may speak at a different rate of speed because of cultural normalcy and training. And so all of that may mitigate toward or against accepting the advice. I, I'm still aware of people who will not go to a, a female doctor. My God, we're back in the 19th century, but there we are. You know, and, and therefore, no matter what that doctor says, highly unlikely that the patient was going to the doctor for help will accept the information from said doctor. Um, but if Uncle Fred says it, <laughs> then maybe they will. So, I, yeah, I do think the context changes. So do you think that, um, so hmm, I'm trying to think, is it, are they still looking for the same thing in the different contexts, but maybe they're getting a different mix of the pathos, logos and ethos. Yeah. Or, or do you think it's, uh, it's an entirely different thing, whether you're looking for credibility in a journalist or a scientist or an academic or um, a medical doctor? I just lived experience among people, students and people living as a part of our culture. I, I think that it, it is, I think, well, what do humans want? They want to hear what they want to hear. (laughs) They want to hear what's going to make them comfortable. They want to hear what's going to help them feel that they are, they know about the world. They, they, They don't want to hear bad news. And when they hear bad news, they want to be able to blame it on the people they want to be, you know, and, I mean, those those are all things that haven't necessarily changed again across the ages because Aristotle was talking about this kind of stuff in the rhetoric mm. itself. Um, I, I think the difference is the the vast access to reinforcement of what one wants to believe, the rapidity of that access, or in some cases the absolute. Um, non-acceptance if anything's on the internet it must be wrong unless q says it or if anything's on the internet then it's okay as long as x y or z but then academics like me come along and say okay there are ways of determining authority of information and back at the beginning it was relatively simple if it's dot gov it's information that's gathered through um, nonpartisan information sources but now people hear dot gov and say oh well if you don't like the government then you're not going to accept it dot com is commerce <laughs> and therefore they're trying to sell you something it may not be a bad thing it may still have credible uh, 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 authentic truth to it but they're trying to sell you something hmm. And so on, and 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 so that uh, not not accepting information that doesn't have a name on it with people with, with the with the background of the of people who've done the research and so on. If it's just a person out there saying something. Okay, they have a right to do that, but you probably ought to be careful. That's eroded, ironically, at the very time we have more access to information than we ever did. Yeah, yeah. There's um, there's a credibility crisis, for lack of a better term, going on um, with um, some of these things because uh, academics or scientists for these sorts of things, the the scientific method, right, hasn't really changed. Um, and uh, academia 
in some ways, frustratingly, has not really changed, right? Mm -hmm. These things continue on um, the way that they have. They're operating the way that they have for hundreds of years um, and are part of the reason that we're here today with um, men landing on the moon and, you know, no polio and all these other things, right? Academia and science and these things have have given us a, a life of progress that, you know, in a hundred years ago when we couldn't even get planes into the sky, now we have satellites orbiting the earth telling us exactly our, our location. And, and, and I'm with you on that, except that those examples you used, each one of them is eroding. We haven't put them. If I said, well, look, at we invented cars 50 years ago and we hadn't invented a new car. Gee, we went, we went all the way to the North Pole 60 years ago. Mm. Have we been back? You know, have have we plunged into the ocean further? Uh, polio could come back. All kinds of poxes are coming back. The, the lack of of immunization and inoculation is uh, things are coming back, <laughs> right? And that's because a lack of credibility. And that that's the point I was trying to make is that academia and science. The methods that they use and the accomplishments that they've made have not changed. What's changed is the attitudes yeah. of the masses and the perceptions of these things. Yes, and academia as well, tipping uh, uh, total, uh, just my opinion to somebody who'd been in the field and the practice for a long time, has uh, the integrity of it has eroded because it has essentially gone to a business model. We'll give you what you want. We won't disturb you with ideas you don't want to hear. Um, and and we'll just make sure that it's it's as, as easy and smooth as it can possibly be so you don't have to struggle with with your education. Yeah, and I talked about this on the, the one podcast I was a guest on. Um, you know, it's uh, and again, this this really developed about the same time the internet did, and uh, with everything that has sort of exploded along with the internet. Um, yeah, education becoming um, not everywhere, not in all cases, but in a lot of cases, you know, essentially paying for a job certification, hmm. um, and some of those places being influenced by business to the degree that um, almost you know the research, you know these. These companies providing grants for research, right? It's all for applied research, right? Attempting to fix a problem rather than original research, right? Because with with original research, there's no there's no product at the end of the rainbow necessarily, right? right? If you if you just give people money to explore the mysteries of the universe, um, that money could, in theory, disappear into thin air. Now. Has it? No. You know, a lot of great things have come and the new things come from original research, yes. right? Applied research fixes problems. So if we don't want to be the kind of people who are still using the same phones and the same internet and the same all of the same things in the future, but just better versions, um, then we need to start investing in things that start solving problems that we didn't know we have mm -hmm. or looking at um, ways of making life better um, and safer and more healthy for people um, with technologies that we don't currently have. But there's been a huge shift in the past couple decades away from 
the original research, which is <laughs> sort of the spirit of academia. You you have just triggered a thought. Uh, you you often do, but this is, you know, to, to just now, it's what just occurred to me is I, I've often said we used to be. And, and in no perfect sense, uh, but when we when, when we were taking risks in explorational terms, uh, or at taking risks with research and development budgets being bigger and so on, that's because we didn't know what was out there, and we were trying to f- wanting to go figure it out. Now, maybe it was all for capitalistic reasons because we'll figure out we'll figure out how to make things from it, and we'll make a buck. I'd like to think it was more than that, but okay. But now the risk taking is in the complacency. Hmm. Well, I want to take risks and make anything better because things are great as they are. We don't want to, we don't just let's have things as they are. No changes. Because we've achieved the ultimate already. So let's, let's have that. And the risk is everything that falls apart because of that. Hmm. The environment's going to change no matter what we say we see. And, uh, and diseases will be there if we don't work against them and will come and get us more. <laughs> and so the boogeymen are, are, you know, the monsters, uh, so called, you don't, delegitimize them by by reducing the credibility of somebody presenting the information. But then that takes us back to the filters again into the, oh, but I'm hesitant in what I say. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, you know, I mean, if you, it, if you look at it, it seems pretty obvious that what we're doing is unsustainable. Um, and, you know, you might get some pushback on that from people, depending on what side of the political they're aisle they're on. But really, it's sure. a it's a fairly yeah. simple philosophical argument to make, and I've made it in the past. Right? Mm-hmm. Look at the things that our modern day lives are made out of, and how we produce them, and how we go about them, and then ask yourselves if the world has limited resources, and if you understand what things are made out of, and if you agree that the earth isn't an infinite supply of something, then the only logical conclusion is that eventually you'll run out of things, right? Now, that is inevitable. And that raises vastly uncomfortable questions for other people like, well, how long are we going to let the population continue to grow? Or what are we going to do when we completely run out of resources? And these are questions that need to be considered if the human race is to continue on. Um, but even on a, on a smaller scale without going that far into the future or that deep into in the uh, philosophical pool, um, you can still ask yourself in the short term in the immediate term, well, wouldn't it make more sense to start trying to you know, utilize resources, <laughs> um, that come from things that aren't limited, you know, trying to derive energy from sunlight or from, water or whatnot mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. there's still problems there right solar panels are still made out of non-renewable resources right a hydroelectric dam is still made out of non-renewable resources mm-hmm. but a lot of those components are still recyclable still reusable still able to do things um whereas oil and virgin plastics are are not right so it's 
it's you know it it really doesn't have to come down to politics. It can just no. come down to a a very short chain of rational questions. Yes, which leads to the next um, question, which is why do humans accept traits other than accuracy when determining? credibility why do we do that why do we accept the pathos you know or, or the ethos oh boy if i just had that wisdom wouldn't it be nice <laughs> because i'm human because i've been influenced by many people over the years and if i think about what influenced me by them about them just in teaching terms, I'll just go with something as mundane, uh, you know, as teaching. It's really not mundane at all. But the people that I was drawn toward learning more from and listening to were the people who had some presentational dynamism. But it didn't necessarily have to be that which the popular folks in the group would accept. But a discernible, unmeasurable, but discernible authenticity. How's that one for a conundrum, right? Well, wait yeah. a minute. How do we get off the slide rule and figure out authenticity? Right. <laughs> yeah. But, but, and. And we're uh, presenting information that when one research, one found the legitimacy of it and said, yeah, okay, I want to know more. I want to know more. And that, that, so that's just in teaching. But of course, the, the affect, A-F-F-E-C-T, how you come off, how you seem is, is going to be desperately important to uh, people. And you can't have a, in the teaching circumstance, there's no such thing as a classroom of students where everyone is going to be equally reached. And the very fact of the affect that is authentic to you is not going to reach some other that you make the effort and you can try. But the very nature of of presenting and discussing information means that for some people, a certain voice isn't going to work for other people. It is. Hmm. Yeah. And we, so this is coming back to contextual factors of credibility, but this time, instead of the context being um, the field we're talking about, the context is the actual presenter of the information. Yeah, right? yeah. And so again, with humans, this is completely variable, right? Cause um, I've, I've experienced this personally, right? I'm, I'm not a people person. So, um, sometimes if I go into a situation and I'm particularly quiet, um, people tend to think that, uh, I mean, or that I'm scary or something, right? In other situations, if I go into some place and I'm quiet, people automatically think that I'm smart. Say, well, you know, the, this has happened to me numerous times throughout life. There'll be a group of people having a discussion, right? And I'll just be listening. And I'll say, well, well, look at, he, he's just sitting here listening. Surely he has something important to say, right? <laughs> yes. And yes. that that's a trap that I'll fall prey to as well. Sometimes I'll see people do it and I'll go, you know what? This guy is smart because he's just listening. And then they open their mouth and you go, oh, no, they're not. But... <laughs> 
You can still yeah. be fooled by it even after the fact yeah. if the initial impression, right, is that somebody is being laconic. They're sitting there and they're they're taking everything in and they're processing it. That might not be at all what's happening in their internal life. Um but just that impression might be enough to give them some credibility when they do speak. Whereas some, like I said, somebody can be quiet in a different context and maybe um, being unaffair, unaware of what your facial features are doing or something. You might think, oh, well, this guy's just, you know, a, a mean old curmudgeon or, you know, whatever, when really that's not at all the case either. Right. Um, so, so many, so many hurdles, so to speak, so many factors. And there are people who spend their lives studying these things, so studying rhetoric, studying studying uh, facial features, studying the body movements, uh, those kind of things, and studying them across cultures. How close or how far away do you uh, is acceptable? How fast do you talk? All of those lifetimes spent in studying these things because it's so 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 difficult, and 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 then and then and then you hope that information is going to reach everybody but in order to do that it's got to be presented in a variety of ways by a number of different kinds of people <coughs> excuse me and, and this is what occurs to me too about the, the media that we have and the news cycles that we have when people hear something more than once it begins to reinforce if it was based on something they wanted to hear in the first place if they hear it once in a 24-hour, 48-hour cycle, and they hear lots of other things too, they are less likely to just jump on it and hang on to it. So we've created, again, this, this Frankenstein's monster, really, of, of repetition. We know repetition helps us learn things with tools and with any a number of other circumstances. We repeat information by the same speakers, more or less, same handful of speakers, and depending on your channel or your streaming or your you know, source, over and over and over again. We, we think that terrible things are happening constantly. Okay, arguably they are. Good things are happening constantly too. But if you see the same shooting, and it's going to be discussed, and it should be, and needs to be. But, but the discussion often just goes back to, oh, the awfulness of that moment, rather than the implications of it. And it's easy to dwell on that as a, a syncretic, uh, isolatable moment. But it's certainly not going to affect all of us. But we're finding out that it does. Yeah, and there's you know even a component of it that that you know, makes you ask is by focusing on the, that particular moment, are we adding fuel for future people who might commit some of these acts, right? Some sort of notoriety or some sort of mm -hmm. moment, you know, 15 minutes of fame, um, in a macabre kind of way, yes. rather than focusing on how to prevent this sort of thing in the future. Yeah. It's, um, you know, and it, again, it, how we're determining this credibility. You said one that, that stuck out to me, right? You know, there's researchers that, that put a lot of effort into trying to determine what sort of things people would consider credible, but that's going to vary from person to person, right? The one that you brought up was how close somebody speaks, right? Mm -hmm. Again, I'm not a people person, 
So I'm always keeping a very large distance between me and other people when I'm talking with them, which isn't even that often, right? There's been, a, I've had contact with lots of people throughout life who speak very close. And then even if I back up, they will, they will walk <laughs> in again, right? Yes. Now, what they're saying might be credible, but my brain, the only thing that it can tell me is, man, why are they so close? Oh man, I, Danger. I don't like this. Danger, yeah, yeah. right. Yeah. And so the message goes out the window. Whereas if they are in contact with another close talker, those two people might have a very good exchange of information and they might both consider each other very credible, right? So there's even that individual factor. So, you know, again, with credibility being on the in, the individual receiving the information, right? not only are there factors of the speaker, like, you know, charisma and attractiveness and trustworthiness and expertise that matter in credibility, but there's also the individual subjective biases of the one receiving the information um, that some of them are, are probably unchangeable, right? I don't think I will ever be a close talker. And so as a result, even if somebody is a trustworthy expert, you know, and, and, would, and they're attractive and charismatic, if they're six inches from my face, there's a very good chance I'm, I'm just going to have a hard time hearing what they're actually trying to say. And, and you have the advantage of knowing that, and therefore, possibly with you, probably, when you step back, trying to piece together what the person was saying, and being able to analyze your way through the, the thicket of, of your legitimate needs as a receiver. That's, the, the, lots of people aren't going to go that far. Hmm. And so the message is going to, yeah, and it's not necessarily, um, you know, they're not going to go that far, um, not on purpose. It's not like they're trying to discard what's being said, but it's just that a lot of us are unaware of these internal biases we do have. Mm -hmm. And so if you're unaware of them, and especially unaware of how powerfully they affect um, your ability to receive information, then there's a whole lot of information you're going to throw out just because it's not reaching you in the right way. I'm going to go to a side note now and take that opportunity to say, even though I'm not formally a teacher anymore, that this is why one takes classes, is, is forced in some programs still, to some extent, to take things that you normally wouldn't take. Some some programs require public speaking. And I don't want to public speak. I, I, I'm not interested in it. Okay, well, yes, I get it. I totally get it. Taught public speaking for decades. Yes, I understand. I'm not particularly comfortable in gigantic crowds of people all trying to talk at the same time. Either. And so we, we, we put up our shields and we adjust and, and all. But if you, if you don't engage in studying public speaking and trying to practice it, then you may well not learn how to be um, more attentive to how information is being presented. Well, I don't want to do that. I just want to go out and, and okay, yes, I, but still you're going to go out and be able to apply your trade, your craft, your profession better if you understand how people are communicating with each other yeah yeah Yeah, i know that we've we've talked about it but like um 
this podcast has really been the greatest classroom for me in terms of public speaking because I'm not a people person. And on top of not being a people person, I consider myself um, a pretty slow information processor. Um, and, you, you know, that's the way it's always been, whether I'm studying for school or learning a new job or something. I, I'm, I do not consider myself a quick learner, mm. um, which is something that's very highly valued by society. It takes me a minute to get stuff, but then once I have it, I, I have it, you know? Um, but I remember, um, you know, people might not know this, but we were talking about it before the show. Just podcasting is a form of public speaking, right? Mm -hmm. We're not speaking live, but we have the knowledge that this is going to be live and that there's going to be um, hundreds or thousands of people that listen to it. And so going into it, um, you still have all of those same pressures that you have doing regular public speaking. And, um, you know, I remember I took public speaking with you yes. years and years ago. And I remember <laughs> thinking the same thing at the time, right? The same thing that everybody thinks. When am I ever going to use public speaking, right? And especially being somebody who is just naturally quiet, when would I ever be speaking to a group? And um, I mean, now I speak to a group on the podcast. I'm also in charge of a whole factory of people that I have to talk to. And, um, you know, I've, there's been, yeah. you know, I've, I've been in bands that have played in front of hundreds of people. And so I've spent my whole life speaking in front of groups. Right. Yes. And, um, yeah, having that ability, you know, this is something that's definitely evolved throughout time. And I'm sure that there's plenty of people that listen and think, well, this guy still can't publicly speak. Listen to all the ums and the <laughs> and all this stuff. And they're right, you know, it's, it's, but it's a work in progress, right? When I first started, um, you know, just hearing you say something and then I, I just have this moment of panic, right? Oh man, like what, what am I going to say back? Like what am I, should I ask a question? Should I comment on it? Should I do this, this sort of thing? And there were some sort of dead awkward spaces. If you've been listening to us from the beginning, you'll, you'll pick up on them, right? Um, but as time has gone on, these skills develop, right? And the ability sure. to, to quickly um, be able to hear what somebody's saying and, and analyze, you know, and integrate it with synthesize it and do all of these things and then make the decision to move on to another question or to comment on it and do these things, it, it develops, and so I think that, that that is an important part of credibility that isn't, you know, isn't really explored. It's, a, it's a fantastic point you made because it is a, a development. It is a sensing of rhythm. This is what rhetoric and communication is about, a rhythm. Uh, thinking about whether one's going to say, um. I mean, lots of my students know that I was counting ums every time they were done, <laughs> not to embarrass anybody, but just to say, okay, here are the hash marks. Mm. Uh, maybe a goal would be to cut that in by a third the next time. And then inevitably, invariably, people sooner or later will default to it. I do. Sometimes I do more on this than I do when I'm talking in other public circumstances. I think it's because of the concern about dead space. Well, it's the machines, right? It's a, it's a, a lovely circular uh, microphone in front of me that does not dominate the space. I can see my conversation made. I can, but still, one is aware. 
until that point when one isn't, when one isn't worried about it being going out over the, it's just the conversation. And conversation takes practice. Hmm. And and at the beginning, we certainly have traversed before, but we didn't have that practice of finding the rhythms and when is it dead space and when is it thought. Mm. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) and and that's why we did i think both of us were determining that this one of the many reasons for this other than the sheer joy of it is is to model roughly imperfectly the the regular conversation that is so important to a developing culture a developing mind for life and that's where the struggle with credibility comes in right is because in attempting to model the conversation, we're also attempting to set a good example for philosophical thought and process. And part of philosophical thought and process is not speaking too quickly and not assuming you have all of the answers and not doing all of those things. Mm-hmm. And part of podcasting is diametrically opposed to that, right? <laughs> it's making sure there's no dead space and making sure that you have information to pass on and that sort of stuff. So I'm sure that there's there's plenty of listeners that listen to us day in and day out and go, these guys are just a bunch of idiots that think they have all the answers and are just going on and on. <laughs> and then there's probably other people that go, you know, I know what, these guys, um, they might put a little bit too much thought into stuff and and not really commit to anything as much as they should. And, you know, so I think it's probably spread all over the place, depending on how those individual listeners at home establish credibility listening to us. You know, is it is it the logic of the arguments? Is it the emotions that we appeal to? Is it the characteristics of our voices, of the cadence of our speeches, of the dead space? So all of those same rhetoric and and credibility issues are happening right here in the podcast and people respond to them in vastly different ways as we've seen uh, through reviews and through others yes yes so why do humans hold beliefs that have been discredited oh, you you are full of marvelous questions today <laughs> You 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 are anyway, but these are. I'm not going to stand here and pretend to answer that. Well, I'm sitting, so <laughs> I just lost my credibility. I was, <laughs> if I had any, I. Are I'm going to ask a question in return? Aren't we a species, human beings, who just want? to be sure that what we know is what we know. Mm. And what we knew was what we knew before something actually became known. So we didn't know it. (laughs) We just convinced ourselves we knew it. And we are, we are marvelous creatures sometimes. We are brilliant creatures sometimes. We are incredibly creative creatures sometimes. This human being thing that all of us are collectively, but we are also intransigent. We are arrogant. We are bullheaded and and bullish and 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 bullying and unwilling to encounter the new because it's just too uncomfortable. And the grand thing is that we are all of those things mixed up together. Hmm. Because if we were just the latter we wouldn't exist anymore. <laughs> yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, it's interesting. Um, I'm getting, I'm getting excited for the James Webb Space Telescope. I was convinced that it was going to blow up on the pad. Weren't or we all when we were on our pins, pins and needles watching the thing? <laughs> because after, you know, so many delays and so much money spent, I was like, there's no way this thing's going to work, right? Mm. Well, now it's looking like it's actually going to work. Yeah. Um, and it's going to reveal mysteries of the universe, especially at the beginning of time. That's probably going to alter our whole scientific paradigm. Mm. And I think that that's uncomfortable, right? Because this has happened several times, even in my short lifetime, right? Where um, you you have something that is a scientific fact, in quotes, right? About the age of the universe or um, dark energy or, or all of these different things, how they work and, and whatnot. And there is something about it that when you, when you're, you are taught the fact or you research the fact or whatever, um, you take some comfort or some pride in knowing it and passing it on to others. And then science, the process continues to march on. And we talked about this last week with verisimilitude where um, science isn't about proving anything, right? There are no facts in science. All you're doing is disproving things that, that don't exist. And that's the question of verisimilitude is, well, if our current knowledge, if we know based on our entire history of mm-hmm. knowledge that what we know now is not actually correct, but it's just a, a working theory um, that's been honed and developed from things that we knew were wrong. Um, when the new thing pops up and you're confronted with this uh, contrasting knowledge, you, I think there's a part of your your mind that says, but I spent all this cognitive time and effort on um, learning this fact and integrating it into my worldview and making it a part of me. And now you're telling me I have to change my whole paradigm, you know, and whether or not that's a conscious or unconscious thought, it creates cognitive dissonance. You know, it it creates something in you that says, well, now you have a choice, right? You can continue with the thing that's comfortable (laughs) and the thing that, that you, you know, in quotations and, and, and continue as, business as usual, or you have to do the hard work of relearning something new and then synthesizing that with all of the information and worldview um, that you had before mm-hmm. and, and really doing the hard work of sorting through and saying, well, what makes sense and what doesn't anymore and throwing it out with the full knowledge that you're going to have to do it again and again and again and again. And it's hard work, right? It's, it is. It, it'd be yeah. like if you had to go through your whole house every couple of years and say, oh, well, this thing doesn't work anymore. And, you know, and yeah. we know <laughs> it is very hard work, but also it yields without promise of or certainty. It it seems to have the ability to yield liveliness and flexibility into the far into the aging process Hmm. whereas just repeating the same old things as they were without acknowledging anything new seems to have a deleterious effect Hmm. in the aging process so you could reduce it all to well what's better for me to eat my spinach and to learn new things (laughs) 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 or to go the other route (laughs) yeah yeah, and I think that, uh, you know, the more you do it, the easier it gets um, until you become somebody like like us where 
that's that's sort of the thrill of life is now now the thrill of it is the unknown right and so we come into these conversations and we call full out saying yeah we don't know anything and we're not going to give you any answers here we're just going to explore a bunch of stuff we don't know about (laughs) and that's frustrating well sure but 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 it also tends to teach us new things and leads us to read new things and 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 think freshly my last word on credibility today is not the last word of, of credible is the situation that many people are writing about now that happened uh, very very recently when a person working for google a google researcher uh, declared that artificial intelligence the artificial intelligence uh, program and development that he was conversing with has become human and that sent ripples through everyone. So the the, the industry uh, trashing him. He's out of Google. He's out, you know. And but people were saying, no, this is the kind of voice we need in considering the ethics of artificial intelligence. Because what he is saying is, how are we going to confront this when it happens? Because, but but for me, the interesting thing is that there it was sourced in credibility. There was a moment in the conversation between that human being and that algorithmically complex AI in development. There was a moment of credibility that became more than just a moment of credibility for that researcher to say it has happened. And even if it didn't, and most most of the the f- folks in the field are saying, no, 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 we're not anywhere near that yet. Even if it didn't happen for him, there was that moment of credibility, and and so the questions need to be asked: What happens when it wakes up? <laughs> yeah, know? yeah, I think that it is important, and it's important because it raises questions that we don't think about much, right? Um, you know, another good one is. We'll all admit that we, our pets have personalities, but none of us are going to admit that our pets are persons, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. So the way that we use language and the way that we conceptualize some of these abstract concepts and the consequences that it can have on how we interact with different things is vitally important. <laughs> so whether yes. or not it happened in a given context, um, the possibility of it occurring or the probability or the, yeah the probability of it occurring are things that we should consider before we run up against it yes and i think that is a big part of credibility so yeah man this this is a good discussion i'm really glad that we decided to follow up on verisimilitude Me too. and um there was a bunch of other ones that I threw at you that were similar to it. And I don't know if we'll go right into them. Maybe we'll give you a break and go on to something else. But a lot of them were very interesting, and I'm sure that we're going to be following up on this I concept so. in the future. So until next time, keep on.